Listener Production. James Clear is a renowned author and thought leader in the realm of personal development, habit formation and peak performance. His groundbreaking book, Atomic Habits, has sold more than 15 million copies worldwide and was a number one New York Times bestseller. In this fascinating conversation, we discuss identity-based habits, how we can actively design and direct these habits rather than being at their mercy, and how small habits can have a profound impact on our lives. We also touch on how to break free from negative patterns and the significance of prioritising consistency rather than intensity in establishing habits that last. How can I make the habit obvious? How can I make it attractive? How can I make it easier? How can I make it more satisfying? And the answers to those questions will reveal different steps that you can take to increase the odds that the habit's going to occur. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. James Clear is a speaker, writer, and one of the wisest voices when it comes to knowledge on habit formation. In its essence, this conversation highlights that sustained success is not primarily attained by merely reaching our predefined goals. Rather, it emerges as we gradually integrate and embody the daily rituals and traits of the individual we want to become. My hope is that this conversation leaves you with actionable insights to help improve your life and the lives of others. James Clear, I think it would be hard-pressed to find someone that doesn't know your book, Atomic Habits, with over 15 million copies sold and a number one New York Times bestseller. It is like the guide for every single person. I think every time I go on holidays, I'm looking and someone around the pool is reading Atomic Habits, including myself at one stage in my life. But I want to start at the beginning of your story and kind of go back to those sophomore years and how the creation of this all began. Sure. So I played baseball for many years growing up. My sophomore year of high school, I suffered this serious injury where I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. It was an accident. My classmate took a swing and the bat slipped out of his hands and uh, struck me right between the eyes. And I broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, shattered both eye sockets. Um, I managed to make my way back down into the school uh, behind the field and answer questions for a few minutes and then pretty quickly lost consciousness. Uh, They took me out on the stretcher in the ambulance, went to the local hospital. And then I lost the ability to have basic functions like swallowing and breathing. So pumping breath into me by hand, air carried me to a larger facility. So they loaded me up on the helicopter and flew me there and had a seizure when we landed. And so they kind of decided I was too unstable to undergo surgery at the time. I don't remember any of this, of course. How old were you? Uh, I was 16. I was placed into this medically induced coma. And it wasn't until the next day that I was stable enough for them to release me. And that started this very long process of recovery, you know, so I um, was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking in a straight line at my first physical therapy session. I had double vision for about a month. I couldn't drive a car for nine months. Uh, it really was like a year later that I got back on the baseball field. I ended up having a very modest high school career, barely got to play. And then in college, I, I was able to weasel my way onto a team and then eventually got a little bit better each year and became a starter. And team captain, and then my senior season, Academic All-American, which is about 30, I think 33 players um, around the country. So I look back on that now, and I don't really consider it to be, you know, this heroic story or anything, but it was just, we all have challenges that we face in life, and this injury was one of mine. And I think that despite the cards I was dealt, or despite the, you know, the injury that I faced at the time, I look back now and feel like I was able to make the most of my potential that, you know, I had a good career as a baseball player and that I feel, um, yeah, I feel like I made the most of what I had. 
And I think at some level, that's all any of us are really hoping for. You know, we just want to feel like we did the best that we could with, with what we had available to us. And the way that that happened for me was by focusing on building small habits. You know, like I just tried to have a good physical therapy session or maybe a couple months after the injury, I couldn't really do much physically, but I could focus on studying and getting a good grade on a test. And then about a year later was the first time that I started going to the gym consistently. At first it was really minor, like short workouts for a day, you know, a day or two a week. And then eventually it became four or five days a week. And gradually I was trying to find these ways to get small wins and to build up some confidence and to feel like I was able to move forward. And uh, habits were the avenue through which I was able to do that. Now, I didn't have a language for it at the time. You know, if you would have come up to me, I never would have said, oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better each day. Or, you know, <laughs> I'm just trying to build small habits. Like some of the things that, you know, I, I yeah. write about now and in, in the book. But I was forced to practice it. And I think by practicing the ideas, eventually writing about them a decade later, I think the writing was better because I, I had to utilize them. So that's a little bit about my introduction into the concepts and about how I was forced to start small. And uh, now, of course, years later, I, I write about a lot of those things. It's interesting because in the book, you actually say at one point when you had the accident and then you were recovering and you got cut from the team you initially played for and then you were sent down to the sophomores, you say, I still believed I could become a great player. How did you believe that? It's an interesting question. I think some of it is just who I am and how my personality is. And I think some of it is the people around me and the support that I had. So whether it was from my grandparents or my parents, I had people feeding me good ideas and positive ideas. And so I, you know, I just kind of tried to latch onto that. Sometimes I say about my parents, they, they sort of have like a selective memory. They only remember the good parts. <laughs> and, you know, you can have downsides to being biased one way or another. But I think if I had to be biased one way, I would prefer to, to be biased that way. And that's been something that I've tried to adopt whenever I could to remember the good parts and latch onto the good parts. So some of it was that. And then some of it is just, I don't know, I have a hard way of describing it, but I guess I would say there's some level of self-confidence that I have or self-assuredness being willing to trust myself that I could get there eventually. To me, that just seems like it's part of my personality. Because a lot of people in that situation who would have gone through what you went through, it would be very much like, I can't come back from this. And, you know, the fact that you got up and you went to the gym and you started doing what we know now as those little habits is quite incredible and life-changing. And if we look at the trajectory of your life now, it's like going from that to this is, you know, amazing. I wonder how you didn't throw it all in and say, well, this is just not for me. And, you know, it's kind of like that sliding doors moment where you made a choice and that changed your life forever. Yeah, I definitely consider this to be something that I don't know whether it's part of my personality or not. It is something I aspire to do or something that I, a way that I try to act and show up in the world, which is to not worry about things that haven't happened yet or that aren't a problem yet. You know, like there's this interview of Michael Jordan one time where the journalist was basically saying like, well, you, you know, you take all these big shots. Like, what if you take a shot to win the game, but you miss it? And his response was like, why would I think about missing a shot I haven't taken yet? Yeah. And... I like phrases like that or thinking about things in that way, you know, like, why am I going to sit here and think about like, oh, I'll never be able to achieve that now. Like, who knows what it's going to be like in 10 years? You no, know? I am not always able to achieve this, but as best as possible, I try to not be my own bottleneck in life. You know, I try to make the world tell me no before I tell myself no. And that does not guarantee success by any means. Simply believing that you're going to be able to do something does not guarantee that you can do it. But not believing it or thinking that you can't do something almost always is enough to prevent it from happening. Mm. And so I try to avoid having this internal monologue that is stopping me before the world is stopping me, that um, I try to avoid ruminating on things or worrying about things that haven't happened yet and that may never happen. I want to balance that with being the type of person who is good at managing problems and solving problems as they arise, who is good at dealing with reality as it truly exists and is not living in a fairy tale world. But um, I do think it generally, the best form of mental toughness is a mindset that can handle uncertainty and the trust that you will be able to figure it out as needed, 
rather than trying to worry or prepare or plan for every possible iteration. Because the reality is there are far more things that can happen in the world than you can imagine happening. And uh, if you think that you can try to prepare and plan for everything, it's just not possible. And so to me, a lot of that worry is misplaced energy that could be spent trying to deal with reality and figuring out a way to make it happen rather than talking myself out of it before I've even attempted it. That's so true. Uncertainty is a hard one for many of us. And like you said, it's, I mean, that is life, is uncertainty. We don't have 100% answers for a lot of stuff, especially things that are in the future. And when we're in uncertain times, you know, there's a feeling within you that it's just so uncomfortable at times when you're sitting in that uncertainty. And I wonder how you navigate that. Well, I've had to have a lot of practice with it being an entrepreneur. So I, I'm, I've been an entrepreneur for 13, going on 14 years now. And anyone who is building a business can tell you, like, there, for the most part, there isn't really a roadmap. Everybody's running their own race. Now, there are examples you can look to for certain things or for how to, you know, execute a certain project. There are other businesses that are similar. But everybody has different constraints, different employees, different resources, different strengths and weaknesses. And so you're running your own race to a large degree. And so I've kind of lived in that space for the last 14 years trying to figure out how, what is the next step, you know? And there's the other thing with your business is you can choose to direct it anywhere you want, you know? Like nobody, I always say getting a regular career is kind of like um, you're rowing on down a river. There are the banks and it's pretty clear what direction the water's flowing. Your job is to row faster and avoid obstacles and, you know, generally get down in a safe and effective way, but you know where you're headed. Being an entrepreneur is a lot like being on a raft in the middle of the ocean. There are no landmarks. You can go in whatever direction you want. If you're not careful, you just row around in circles all day. You can make enormous headway and end up on an, an incredible journey, but you have to be very clear about what you're trying to do and where you're going. And it's up to you to decide. There are no guardrails. There's nobody else you know, saying, hey, the, the current is moving this way. Early on, it's uncomfortable for everybody. The more that you deal with it and the more that you kind of manage those situations, the greater your confidence becomes and the more trust you have in yourself. So I think the practical answer to this question is you start small and you prove it to yourself with small wins. And with each small win, you gain confidence in your ability to handle the situation or to come up with a solution in the moment. And as you do those things, eventually you come to deal with uncertainty without fear. You come to just face it as the next thing rather than worrying about it or what it might mean or using it as a reason to paralyze yourself. I never traveled internationally until I was about 23 or 24 years old. But throughout my 20s, I did a fair amount of independent travel. And I do think that that helped shape that confidence for me. You know, you land in a country where you don't speak the language, you don't know anyone, you're on your own, you got to figure out basic stuff like how does the bus line work or how do I get to the hotel or where am I going to get the next meal at? And these are not enormous, like, you know, earth shattering problems, but it'll make a lot of people feel pretty uncomfortable to get dropped into that situation. And the more that you learn how to manage it and deal with it, I think the more confidence you gain in yourself being able to handle situations of uncertainty. Mm, that's so true. You talk about the tiny changes making a big difference and you use the example of like a plane going off its route slightly by 1%. A lot of people think those tiny changes aren't doing anything, but I would like you to talk to that and why they actually are so important. So, you know, if you're taking off on a plane from uh, Los Angeles and you're heading towards New York, all you got to do is shift the nose of the plane six, seven feet, maybe eight feet. And uh, you end up in Washington, D.C. rather than New York. You know, like it's just this small shift in initial trajectory that when compounded over the distance of the United States puts you in a very different destination. Life is often like that. You know, like you have this small change in initial trajectory. It doesn't feel like much to read for 10 minutes a day. But the person who always goes to bed a little bit smarter than they were when they woke up, the person who always finds a little bit of time to learn something new each day, over 10 or 20 or 30 years, that can be a pretty meaningful difference in wisdom and insight. Mm. It doesn't feel like much to you know knock out one extra task each day. Maybe it's sending one email or making one extra sales call. On any given day, that does not make you an all-star. But over a 10 or 20 or 30 year career, the person who always makes one extra sales call ends up with better results. And so this small change in initial trajectory, this action that seems pretty insignificant or easy to dismiss on any given day compounds, it transforms over time. 
time will magnify whatever you feed it. So if you have good habits, time becomes your ally. And every day that goes by, you put yourself in a stronger position. And if you have bad habits, time becomes your enemy. And every day that goes by, you dig the hole a little bit deeper. And so I think this is one of the big things, kind of the pillar ideas from Atomic Habits, which is this emphasis on trajectory rather than position. You know, there's a lot of discussion about position in life. What's the number on the scale? How much money's in the bank account? What's the current stock price? What are the quarterly earnings? We have all these ways of measuring our current position. And then if we aren't where we said we wanted to be or we haven't achieved what we set out to achieve, we start to feel guilty or judge ourselves for it. And what I'm encouraging is to say, listen, just for a minute, like let's stop worrying so much about our current position and instead focus a little bit more on our current trajectory. Is the arrow pointed up and to the right or have you flatlined? You know, are you getting 1% better or 1% worse? Because if you're on a good trajectory, all you need is time. But if you're on a bad trajectory, it's not going to end well, even if you're in a pretty strong position right now. And so this concept of shifting the nose of the plane a few feet or getting 1% better each day, trying to emphasize trajectory over position, it's really about getting you to ask yourself, am I walking the right path? You know, am I, am I on a good path right now that will lead me to where I want to be? Or does something need to change? And I think that's one of the most powerful things that your habits can do is they can set you on the right path. And I think also if we're doing the small things at the start, especially if we're building habits, it's a lot easier than like completely changing our life and, okay, I'm going to do this habit and then this and this and this, and then it's just hard to maintain. But those little ones are far easier. I wonder, you know, my producer and I were just talking before you came on and we're talking about like our phone addiction. And I was like, I'm going to ask James about this and how we're both addicted to our phones. And it's like a shocking habit. And, you know, I'm in the personal development space and have been for many years. I can reel off all the reasons why not and preach it to everyone else. But it's something that I find and my producer finds really hard, right? Because, you know, it's email, it's messages, it's a host of things, social media, which, you know, obviously can be hideous at times, but also good in other senses. And I wonder how do we beat phone addiction? Well, what you're mentioning is one of the core problems, which is that there is a blending of context. There's a blending of usefulness and unusefulness that is happening on the same device. And one thing that research has shown is that generally speaking, it's easier to stick to a new habit if it's the single thing that's happening in that context. So if you're trying to build a meditation habit that you have a spot, you know, a corner where you have a pillow and it's the meditation corner and that's the only thing that happens there. Or if you're trying to build a journaling habit, there's one coffee shop that you go to and that's the journaling coffee shop and it's the only thing that you do there. And by linking very cleanly and very clearly a new habit to a specific context, it becomes easier for that to be the thing that you do and you slide into that pattern when you're there and you don't get distracted. Your phone is like the exact opposite of that. It's so easy to get distracted because all you have to do is just tap your thumb on a different part of the screen and suddenly you're listening to an audiobook or playing a video game or browsing social media or reading on your favorite web website. And because it can do so many different things, it's almost impossible for it not to distract you unless you take a radical measure like deleting all the apps. You know, like I've... so. This is something I've just done the last year and a half or so, but I don't have any social media on my phone anymore. I can use them on my desktop, but I don't. I just don't have the apps on my phone. Email was the most radical one that I did about six months ago. I don't have email on my phone anymore. Oh, wow. I can use it on the desktop, but I don't have it on my phone. And what I found was that if I'm being honest about when do I truly need to answer an email and I only have my phone with me, it's probably like twice a year um, that that happens. And if I'm in a situation where I'm in an airport, I'm not around a computer or whatever, and I have to get to this, this response out right away, I'll just download the app again and send the email and then I'll delete it. And, and I can that's enough friction that I'm not going to download the app just to check Gmail randomly because I'm bored and don't have anything to do for 20 seconds. But I will download it if I genuinely need to get this email out. And so by introducing a little bit of friction, that changes how I use the phone. And I have noticed over the last six months or so, I am a little less likely to pick it up because there's not that much useful that happens on it. 
Um, <laughs> you know, like I, yeah, it, it's just not as interesting as it was before. I'll pick it up if I need to text somebody or if I need to call someone. I can still get on the internet. I do still have a web browser on there. So that that's probably the thing I do most frequently now is look at websites, but no social media, no email really changes how I use it. Wow. A lot of these things, these habits that we feel like, oh, I just do them a little more than I want or I don't want to spend so much time on them. It's not that we don't want to do them at all. It's just that we don't want them to occupy as much space in our life. And so I found that if I can redesign my environment a little bit, that often is enough to curtail the habit to the desired degree. So as an example with our phones, I I can't do this every day, but I try to do it frequently. And whenever I do, I'd say, let's say 70% of days, I can leave my phone in another room until lunch. And I almost always have a better day when I do that. And I'm like everybody else. If my phone is next to me, I'll pick it up and check it every three minutes just because it's there. But if I leave it in another room, I have a home office. And so it's only like 30 seconds away, but I never go get it. And I always think that's so interesting. Like, did I want it or not? You know, like in the one sense, I wanted it bad enough that I would check it every three minutes if it was next to me. But I never wanted it so bad that I would walk 30 seconds down the hallway to go get it. A lot of habits are like that. If you just introduce a little bit of friction, it will reduce itself to sort of the desired degree or to a better degree. I've noticed that with beer as well. If I buy a six pack of beer and put it in the fridge in the if it's in the door where I can see it as soon as I open it, I'll grab one and drink it with dinner just because it's there. But if I put it like on the lowest shelf in the fridge, kind of tucked all the way back, I got to bend down to be able to see it. Uh, sometimes I'll forget that I even bought it. It'll be there for two or three or four weeks. I won't even remember that it's there. Again, this does not work for everything. And I don't think it would work for like a true addiction if you were struggling with alcoholism, for Mm -hmm. example. But many habits and for many people, you will find that if you just introduce a little friction, put some more steps between you and the behavior, it will often reduce itself to the degree that you want it to. I mean, it must feel very liberating not having your phone with you the whole time and not just checking it willy-nilly. And, you know, I think a lot of us with our phone addiction, we don't even realize like how many times we're picking it up and looking at it because it just becomes something that we're doing to fill in like blank space. Mm-hmm. I wonder what do you do now if you're going to an airport and, oh God, I'd have so much more time. I mean, I don't even know what I'd do. The question that I ask myself is what do you do when there's nothing to do? Yeah. And for most people, the answer is I look at my phone. Mm. Um, and so you probably do need to find something that substitutes for that. So maybe it's listening to an audiobook. That's one of my defaults now is that rather than check my phone or browse social media, I'll just tap play on the audiobook. But there probably needs to be something that you come to or go to that fills that void. And uh, ideally, it's something productive or enjoyable, or it doesn't even have to be productive in like the businessy sense. It just is something that's more favorable uh, or gets you a little closer to the life that you want to be living. How do you structure your day for success and not allowing those distractions? Like say, for example, I also work a lot from home and, you know, I've got teams where, you know, people are trying to contact me or I've got email and text message, like all those different things. And then, you know, a lot of the time I'm writing a to-do list and I've got tasks and I try and put my hardest one at, at the start. So I'm like doing that. But then next minute someone on Teams wants someone, something on an email wants something and they all seem kind of urgent. And then, you know, half the morning's been taken up just responding rather than actually doing the task. Okay. So I'll answer your question. How do I structure my days? But I want to caveat this by saying my days have looked very different throughout my 10 plus year entrepreneurial career. And what makes the most sense for the stage you're in is what's most important, not necessarily what someone successful or not is doing. So like I can imagine, for example, if you're coming up as a basketball player, you're like, well, what does LeBron James do? Like, how does he spend his days? That's like, I want to, I want to kind of, you know, imitate that. But LeBron is in year like 20 of his career. And so what he's doing now might be very different than what an 18-year-old kid needs to do to, you know, he may be trying to lose weight to increase longevity and not be as hard on his body. And you may need to gain weight and build muscle and do something totally different. I think it's important to ask yourself, what are people that are at my stage now that are doing well, what are they doing? Not just like what are really successful people at the top doing? Because they're at a totally different stage and may have completely different demands. So With that having been said, early in my career, my days were very singular and focused. 
I would write two articles a week. So I wrote an article every Monday and Thursday, and I did that for the first three years. That was really the writing habit that kind of launched my career. And when I was writing those articles, the shortest I ever did one in was eight hours. The longest was like 40 or 60 hours, but that was rare. Most articles, though, were like 15 to 20 hours is about how, how much time it would take. So I was spending 30 to 40 hours a week writing two articles. That like That's how I spent my time. That's what my week was structured like. And then the rest of the time was spent building the business, marketing, trying to grow it, whatever. But like that's that's where the time went. Eventually, Atomic Habits comes out, and now my day looks totally different. I had to switch my style of writing. So now I don't write two articles a week. I write one newsletter a week. It's much shorter. It takes me like two to three hours rather than taking 20 hours. And the rest of the time is spent doing interviews, giving speeches, managing all the other inbound stuff that's happening in the business, and hopefully, occasionally, creating new things. And what I found was that after a year or two of Atomic Habits selling well, I was spending all my time managing things and not creating. And that's the part that I really enjoy. So this next phase, this current phase that I'm in for how my days look is I have a few days a week, two days a week that are just kind of general and I can work on anything. But then for the other three days, I have themes. So like I work on a different project for each day. So like one day I might work on the book that I'm working on. Another day I work on just on the newsletter exclusively or like um, finding material for future newsletters. So I have adopted the another day I might have like for calls, like all calls happen on one day. So that's the pattern that I'm in now that makes the most sense for my current stage, but it wouldn't have made sense for me five years ago or 10 years ago. So it shifts over time, but I'm currently at this stage where if I want to be creating in addition to managing everything, I have to have dedicated days that are like, this is just for creating um, and the management stuff can happen outside of that. They say like, you can't be what you can't see. And, you know, you kind of were talking about looking to someone who's at your level to be able to see if they're successful, you know, what they're doing. Who do you look to? I don't have any one person that I look at and say, oh, I want everything that they're doing or everything that they have. But I have different people who I admire the way they do a particular thing. So like, let's just take one that a lot of people might wonder about or that's very front and center in my business. So writing another book or what do I want my career to look like as an author? If I look to other nonfiction authors who have an arc that I kind of like, I think both Malcolm Gladwell and Brene Brown have had interesting arcs. And the reason that I like them, Brene is probably like at the top of the game right now. She doesn't produce a book every year. She's she's written quite a few. She's written five or six in the last probably 10 or 12 years. Um, so that's probably a little more frequently than what I would like to do. But each time that she comes out with one, it's an event. There are other authors who they write a book every year. And um, there are many ways to win. Like there's nothing wrong with that. It just isn't a style that I kind of feel like I gravitate toward. Malcolm Gladwell is probably even less frequent. Like he probably is a book every four years or something. And that kind of pace feels right to me where it's like, I'll do it. I'll try to make it the world's best book on that topic. And then it'll be a big thing. It'll be an event when it comes out. And then I'll kind of, you know, hole up and spend another few years working on the next one. I don't have any particular timeline that I need to hit. Like I don't, I don't need it to be every four years or five years or something like that. I am only going to write a book if I feel like I really have something to say about it. But as far as like people that I look to and say, you know what, I kind of like how they approach that. Uh, those are two examples. You say in the book, if you're having trouble changing your habits, the problem isn't you, the problem is your system. Can you talk to us a bit about that and why it's not so much our problem? Because I think a lot of the time people would think that it was. When people are trying to change and they attempt something and then it doesn't work out, it's very easy to get into this kind of like thought spiral where you're like, well, of course it didn't work out. I always fail at that. Or, mm. you know, of course, you know, that wouldn't happen for me because I'm not good at that. Or we have these stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and what we're good at and what we're, you know, capable of. And what I'm trying to encourage with that sentence is to get people out of that mindset and to stop assigning so much self-worth to an outcome or to stop getting wrapped up so much in whether things work for you in the past or not. I'm not even guaranteeing that this will work. All I'm saying is I just need you to be open to the possibility that it will work. Because if you are not open to the possibility, then you'll find all kinds of ways to sabotage it and to prevent it from happening. And I think as best as possible, it'd be nice to just leave some of that mental baggage to the side as we're starting out. And so my way of encouraging that is to say, listen, this isn't about you. Okay. We don't have to make this so much about what you believe about yourself or whether you failed in the past or any of that. 
it's just about setting up the right kind of system. It's about creating the right conditions for success. And if we can structure this in the right way, if we can put you in a good environment and give you a structure and a strategy that is effective, then we're much more likely to be able to follow through on the things that we hope to do. And so that's what that sentence is intended to kind of get at. And I suppose if people like, say, for example, if they're trying to lose weight or something like that, how would you set up an environment to best win in that situation? There are many different things that we can do, but it's probably good to just zoom out for a second and get everybody on the same page here in terms of my approach. So I covered this in Atomic Habits, but from a very high level, if you want to build a good habit, there are kind of four things that you want working for you. So I call them the four laws of behavior change. The first thing that you want is you want to make your habits obvious. So that's the first law, make it obvious. You want to make it attractive. So you want your habits to feel compelling, interesting, engaging, motivating. The third law is to make it easy. The easier, more convenient, frictionless, simple a habit is, the more likely it is to be performed. And then the fourth and final law is to make it satisfying. The more satisfying or enjoyable a habit is, the more pleasurable or rewarding it is, the more likely you are to feel compelled to repeat it in the future. And there are many ways to do each of these things. So we can talk about you know more, more examples as we go forward. But make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, I'd love to get in shape, or boy, I would love to be more productive, or I'd love to start meditating, or whatever the habit is that you're trying to focus on, you can just go through these four laws and ask yourself, how can I make the habit obvious? How can I make it attractive? How can I make it easier? How can I make it more satisfying? And the answers to those questions will reveal different steps that you can take to increase the odds that the habit's going to occur. So that's kind of the big picture framework for thinking about how to approach it. And then there are many different granular ways to implement each of those ideas. A teacher that taught me meditation many years ago and a lot of other things, he always said that knowledge is the precursor to experience. And it's just so true. Like when he would explain the different meditations he was doing. You would understand the science behind them. You would understand everything that was happening in your brain. And once you had that knowledge and you went into the meditation, the experience was so different and so profound. And there's not a morning that goes past that I don't wake up and do meditation. It's just this habit that I love and something that I just know is so good for me, but I actually really enjoy doing it. And I wonder, from your knowledge of habits, what you found in relation to like people understanding the benefits of what they're actually doing. Well, the more that you understand the benefits or the more that you believe that there are benefits, certainly the more compelled you're going to feel to do something. If you assign a lot of value to it and feel like, oh, this is really going to benefit me in my life, then you have a good internal story or narrative for why you do it. I actually think the most interesting phrase that you just used as you were kind of laying out this question is that you actually enjoy it, that Mm. you enjoy meditating. And I think I did not write this in the book. I, I didn't include this in Atomic Habits, but I wish I had, which is one of the most important questions to ask yourself if you're trying to get a habit established is what would this look like if it was fun? You know, what would it look like if it was fun to meditate? What would it look like if it was fun to go to the gym three days a week? What would it look like for me if it was fun to write every day? And there are many ways to do each thing in life. Like there there may not be a thousand ways to do something, but there's almost always more than one way. And so I think it's worth it to ask yourself, what is the version of this habit that I'm most excited about that feels the most fun to me? And as an example, most common New Year's resolution is some form of exercise to go to the gym. I kind of feel like a lot of people go to the gym in January because they feel like that's what they should do or that, you know, it's like something that they're expected to do or that society wants them to do. But there are many versions of living an active life. You know, you could kayak or rock climb or do yoga or uh, there's all kinds of things. We could come up with a very long list and you should choose the version of that habit that you're most genuinely excited about because if it feels fun and engaging to you, you're going to be much more likely to stick with it. In a lot of ways, I feel like this is one of the biggest hurdles to cross early on is, does it genuinely feel fun to me? Does it genuinely feel exciting to me? And if it does, you're going to find nearly endless ways to improve. 
But if it doesn't actually feel fun or enticing, if it doesn't feel engaging or interesting, even the obvious improvements are going to feel like a hassle. You know, like pretty much everything's going to feel like a chore if you're just trying to force yourself to do it. So I think that's one of the the best questions to start with is what would it look like if, if this habit was fun? It's so true. Years ago, I used to run because I thought, oh, it's easy. You just leave your house and you just run. It's not costing me anything. Secondly, you know, I come back and I'm like dripping in sweat. So, you know, it's obviously done something for cardio and it's a good workout. And as the years passed, I thought, I don't really like this. I was dreading getting up, going for a run. Melbourne winter, it's freezing. And then one day I thought, why am I doing this? Like I actually despise it. And then I started doing boxing and things that brought me joy. And I've never looked back. Like there's not a day that doesn't go past where I'm like, oh, I you know, love going and doing personal training or doing boxing session with my coach. And I think exactly to your point, why was I doing something that I did not like? I'm the sort of person that will do it anyway, but a lot of people won't. They'll do it a couple of times and then they'll stop. So I think there's something really in that with meditation, like find a meditation that you like. When I first started meditating, I did a few and they were so boring and that put me off for months. And then I found meditations that I just loved. And there will always, I believe, be a version of a habit that you will like if you kind of look hard enough. So there's two things to consider here. The first is you have to give yourself permission to experiment a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I think some people, they kind of feel like if I was going to be successful at this, then it would just mean that I could do it straight out from the gate and just do, you know, do it well. And if I fail, if I only do it for four days and then it doesn't work, well, then that must mean I'm a failure. And my response would be, no, that's not what it means at all. It just try a variety of ways to do this thing, you know, and maybe you need seven or eight or nine tries. And it's not actually until the ninth attempt of doing it differently that you figure out the version that works for you. So first you need this kind of a willingness or giving yourself a permission to experiment a little bit and to not be perfect right uh, from the start. And then the second thing, one strategy that almost always makes it a little bit more attractive or that almost always helps it be a little bit more fun or not seem as intimidating is to scale it down. So maybe doing 25 minutes of meditation seems like a lot for somebody who's just getting started. And that seems, you know, maybe you can do it for the first week because you're motivated, but then you get in the second week and you're tight on time, or you're tired or stressed from work or something. And you're just like, oh, forget it. Like this isn't going to be fun. I don't have time to do it. Or you can pick any other habit, you know, like there are many things that are like that. But if you scale it down and say, hey, actually, I'm only trying to build a habit of meditating for one minute. Well, now that's so short that even if you forgot the whole day and you get to the end of the day, like you can just sit on the bed and meditate for one minute before you fall asleep. Um, and so you make it so easy that you almost can't say no to it. You know, it's and that I think naturally, it doesn't automatically mean that the habit is fun, but it does give you a chance to make it feel like a little bit more of a game. Like, oh, can I just get my one minute in? Like, that's kind of an interesting little thing that I'm doing. It's not, it doesn't have to occupy such a big serious space in your mind where it's like, well, if I didn't do this 45 minute workout, then it must mean that I'm a loser and that I don't really care about my health and that I always fail on this or whatever. Like that, I think that's too much weight to place on it in the beginning. It doesn't have to be like that. Mm. Let's scale it down, make it playful, make it fun, find a version that seems naturally compelling to you and then get it integrated, get it to be part of your life. And then you can scale it up and in increase it from there once you've gained a little bit of a foothold. I want to talk about purpose and meaning. I've heard you say that with your business at the moment, you're obviously very successful in what you do and you have the choice now to be able to pick and choose what you want to do. How do you choose the things that bring you joy, but still at the same time, obviously balance your home life and, you know, where does money come into this? Because I know a lot of entrepreneurs are more about like, how much can I accumulate? Tell us a bit about what you do. Well, the answer depends on the category of thing that we're talking about. So, you know, I don't treat everything in my life the same. Like I don't treat the way that I optimize family life the same that I optimize my writing habits or the same that I optimize like speaking requests or things like that. So I, I've got different strategies for different things. Honestly, like I'm still trying to figure it out too. You know, like nobody, this idea that like there's these people out there who have it all figured out and like you just need to go to them for the answers. Like I I don't know, you know, like I'm, I'm still trying to, to make my way as well. So... With that said, there is obviously a restriction on time. And so that's a big constraint. How much time do I have to do these things? And 
before Atomic Habits was published, I spent a lot of time writing and working on the book and the career burner was kind of cranked on high and I wasn't really spending that much time with family and friends. And then now the book has come out and I have kids now. And so the family burners cranked up higher and the work burners cranked down lower. So I probably have maybe 40% of the hours that I had for a work week that I had, you know, before uh, the book came out. So obviously there are a lot of constraints there that didn't exist before. You know, the first thing, I've been a really slow learner on this, but I have had to get much better about what I say no to. So there's just a lot of things that don't make it through the filter now that used to be really exciting. And I would definitely say yes to, but I, I just, the reality is I don't have that amount of time. So I'm always about three to six months behind on what I should be saying no to. So I'm still learning too slowly, but I have, I have improved quite a bit there. Second thing is I've just had to eliminate some stuff. So, you know, for the first 10,000 email subscribers that I had, I responded to every person who signed up individually. I would send them all a message to say, thank you so much for signing up. Really excited to have you here. Like, you know, this is what I write about. You know, I'll be sending new ideas your way soon. And um, after 10,000, that just became unsustainable. So, you know, I couldn't do that anymore. But I would still, from about 10,000 subscribers up until mm, about like 400,000 or so, I would still respond to any message that people sent. So if they sent me an email, I would I would reply. Um, so I wasn't reaching out now, but I was I was responding. Then once I got to be like half a million to a million subscribers, that was not sustainable anymore, and I just could I just couldn't spend time responding to emails. And I still hate that because I kind of feel like I don't have as good of a read on the audience as I used to. But it's just the reality is I can't spend time doing that. Um, so. Uh, some of that stuff has changed and has been eliminated to try to create space. And then there are other areas where like I filter things differently, like with interviews, I'm like, okay, what am I trying to achieve with this? Well, my hope is that the hour that I spend talking about these ideas, that they'll reach a lot of people and that it'll somehow be useful and helpful. So in that case, I mostly choose interviews based on the amount of audience reach that it has and the number of people that it can, the messages can spread out to, because that's one way that I can help make a difference. I get between 10 and 15 interview requests a day right now. So obviously I can't do them all. Um, so I have to just be really strict about what gets through the filter. With speaking, it's a little bit different. Uh, same thing, you know, I get like three to five requests a day. So obviously I can't do that many. I usually do one to two a month. With those, I just filter based on budget. So that's just kind of like, it's not necessarily the best way to do it, but it is the cleanest way to do it. I have different strategies for different things, but those are a couple of different ways that I try to regain some time or figure out how to manage it all. When it comes to money, how much are you driven by the money that you get or the joy that you get? You know, what's funny is I actually used to be driven by money a lot less. The most uh, pure that my motives were, were when I was starting out and wasn't making any money. I started writing about this stuff 14 years ago, just because I thought it was interesting. And I wanted to help make a difference and try to share something meaningful. And it couldn't, <laughs> it couldn't have been about the money because I wasn't making any, um, <laughs> you know, like it was just, it was just about trying to make an impact and share something useful with people. And I did at some point believe in my mind, you know, if you provide enough value to other people, they'll be, it'll find its way back to you somehow. And, you know, it'll, you will have a successful business if you can connect with enough people or provide uh, a useful service to a large enough audience. And that did end up being true, but I was kind of just operating on faith with that argument at the time. All of that to say, early on, it was just purely about making a difference. Gradually, like I would say the first five years were like almost always, it was almost like a form of service. There was, there was so little money, money coming in. I could just, I could make ends meet. So that was good. Um, and then eventually uh, I started making enough money that I was living a comfortable lifestyle, but it really was just about trying to provide as much value as possible. Once the book blew up and all these opportunities are coming your way, now all of a sudden there's this just this like entrepreneurial management of the whole system. So it's like, okay, I'm looking at six different opportunities that I could do. One of them might reach a little bit more people, but make half as much money. The other one might make twice as much money, but reach say 60% of the audience. Which one should I do? And I, you know, I still don't have great answers to that sort of thing, but I have to make decisions like that all the time. And it's common that I'll choose, well, I'll choose the one that like will pay better um, and I'll reach a few less people, but I'll be able to take that money and put it into 
growing the newsletter and reaching more people for free every week or growing the social media audience and putting more ideas for free out there. So it all kinds of feed, it kind of feeds itself. And once the money is an option, you know, like I said, it wasn't an option for me early on, but now that it is, you start getting into this much more creative mode where you're like, well, if I could earn more, then maybe I could take that and put it toward projects that can make a bigger difference. Um, like for example, my latest project is that we're launching an iPhone app. So it's a it's a habit tracking app and an app that shares a lot of my best ideas about building better habits and so on. And apps are expensive to build and maintain. And so, you know, in this case, it makes sense to do things in the business that drive more revenue so that I can channel it toward a new product or service that could benefit the audience. So it's uh, the decision making is actually strangely less clean now than it used to be. But I would say that at the core of it, all I really want is to be able to provide something useful. And of course, we all want to make good money from the things that we do. And everybody wants to not have to worry about money and to live a comfortable lifestyle. And um, so I think anyone in that kind of situation would want to be able to achieve those kind of financial goals for themselves. But I have noticed that while the money is nice and it can make you feel powerful in some sense, I definitely get more meaning and purpose out of the comments that I get from readers that this book was life-changing for me, or I took this and I was able to write my own book because of it, or I finished a half marathon because of it or whatever, because I just want to feel like I'm making my own little contribution to, you know, to my corner of the universe. And it's those comments that make me feel that way, not, you know, the number in the bank account. Yeah. I think when you're lying on your deathbed, that's what you got to remember, you know, the difference that you made rather than, as you said, the amount of money in your bank account. I wonder for you, you say that habits kind of form our identity. And I believe that to be very true. But why do you believe that? Well, your habits are how you embody a particular identity. So every day that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. Every time you study biology for 20 minutes, you embody the identity of someone who's studious. And so your habits are kind of this avenue through which you provide evidence of being a certain kind of person to yourself. Every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you wish to become. So no, doing one push-up does not transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, writing one sentence may not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I am a writer. And individually, those are small things, but collectively, you start to build up this body of evidence. Each time you do a little habit, you cast a vote on the pile, and it starts to shift the weight of the story in favor of being that kind of person. And so I think in that way, there's a very direct connection between the small habits that you perform each day and the story that you tell yourself about who you are and what's normal for you and you know what your lifestyle is like and the type of person that you are. And so your habits are actually the pathway through which you can prove to yourself that I am this kind of person or I do have this type of identity. And I feel like this is a little bit more powerful than things that you might hear frequently like fake it till you make it. You know, I don't necessarily have anything wrong with fake it till you make it. It's asking you to believe something positive about yourself, but it's asking you to believe something positive without having evidence for it. And there's a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call that delusion, right? Like your brain doesn't like this mismatch between what you say you are and what you're actually doing. And so my encouragement, my suggestion is to let the, let the behavior lead the way. To start with one small habit, you know, whether it's one sales call or one minute of meditation or writing one sentence, but let that small action be evidence that in that moment you were that kind of person. And pretty soon you have every reason in the world to believe it. And I think this is ultimately where we're really trying to get with our habits. True behavior change is really identity change. It's really getting you to shift the story that you have about who you are and what's normal for you. And once you believe in that, once you start to take pride in being that kind of person, it becomes a little bit easier to stick to the habits. You know, if you take pride in the size of your biceps, you never skip arm day at the gym. Or if you take pride in how your hair looks, you have this long hair care routine, you do it every day. And so it's really those elements of our story that we take pride in and that we believe are part of who we are that 
are a little bit easier to stick to day in and day out. And I think you can facilitate that by focusing on small behaviors that have a connection to your desired identity. We're coming off New Year's and that's a time where people obviously, you know, it's the the number one habit forming time, you know, New Year, New Year. There would be so much research, you'd know about it, where people stick to it for a couple of months and then they fall to the wayside. Why is that? And how do we allow that to not happen? Like if people have set these goals, like how can we make sure that they're keeping with them and that another year doesn't pass and, and they've done them for like a month or two? There are many reasons that we could choose. So like one thing we could say is, why do people fall off course? Well, maybe it's because they don't make habits obvious, attractive, easy, and satisfying. So that's that's one like kind of tactical thing you could say. Okay, if I want to stick to it this year, how can I make it more obvious? How can I make it more attractive? How can I make it easier? How can I make it more satisfying? Another thing we could say is, well, maybe the fact that you fall off track is actually a signal that you don't care as much as you thought you did. You know, maybe a lot of the things people choose for their resolutions they choose for the wrong reason. They choose because they feel like they should do it, but it's only because their parents expect them to or their peers want them to do it or they feel this urge from society to act in a certain way. And what you really need is to choose the habits that you genuinely want to have, not that others want you to have. This comes back to that question we asked earlier of what would it look like if it was fun for me? You know, like you need to choose the version that feels right for you. And then a third thing we could say is, well, maybe you fall off course because there isn't that clean of a connection between your habits and your identity. That actually, in some cases, there's a conflict between the identity or the beliefs that you have about yourself and what you're asking yourself to do. And that can be a tricky part about identity because in some cases, your identity can help you. You know, if you start to believe, oh, I'm the type of person, I'm a runner, for example. Well, now running each day becomes a little bit easier. But You can also have identities that hold you back. Things like, I have a sweet tooth. I'm bad with directions. I'm terrible at remembering people's names. I'm not good at doing math. You know, like all these things are examples of stories that we tell ourselves that can hinder us. And so progress often requires unlearning. You know, you have to, the tighter that you cling to an identity, the harder it becomes to grow beyond it. And so in some cases, you need to upgrade and expand to edit your beliefs about yourself in order to stick to a new habit. And that's an interesting question to ask yourself as well. What what are some beliefs that maybe I need to let go of or at least loosen my stranglehold on in order for me to make space for building this new habit or this new identity that I'm hoping to foster? And ultimately, I think the the practical answer is actually pretty simple. Those Those are maybe all like more expanded answers about why this happens. But the more practical thing is really just, can we focus on having five good minutes? You know, like you can do a lot with five good minutes. Five good minutes of exercise can reset your mood. Five good minutes of conversation can restore a relationship that was broken. Five good minutes of writing can make you feel like the manuscript is moving forward again. In many ways, I think perhaps the way to approach this, whether it's a New Year's resolution or just a change that you want to make at any time, is... Think about two different time frames, 10 years and one hour. You know, so like 10 years is like the big meaningful things that you want to achieve in life. Most of them are multi-year things. Building a successful marriage, raising kids that you're proud of, getting in the best shape of your life, growing or starting a successful business. All of these things take a long time. You know, pick whatever it is for you, but it's not a it's not a something you can achieve in 21 days. And so when you're thinking about that big thing that you're working toward, I think that 10-year vision, one good question is like, what can I do in the next hour to move me a little bit closer to that? You know, how are my habits today? How can I live five good minutes or have one good hour that is getting me a little closer to this 10-year vision that I have or moving me a little closer to that identity that I'm trying to form? How are my habits reinforcing the type of person I wish to be? And I think if you have that kind of lens, maybe you have a healthier way or a little bit of a better perspective for attacking the problem. And um, maybe it gives you a new way to think about the resolutions and the habits that you're trying to build rather than sliding back into the same old patterns. Mm, That's so true. James, what's the best advice that you have ever been given? I generally find questions to be better than advice. Advice is pretty brittle in the sense that it's context dependent. So like if your situation is not very similar to the advice that you're being given, it may not work. 
but questions are very flexible. So like one question that I really like is, what am I optimizing for? Sometimes people optimize for money. Sometimes they optimize for free time. Sometimes they optimize for creative freedom or time with family. Whatever it is, though, it's probably a very personal answer for you. And having that question can help clarify what you should focus on. And it also changes over time. You know, what I optimize for now is different than what I was optimizing for 10 years ago. And that's fine. But you need to keep asking yourself the question to call forth the right kind of answer. Another question that I like is, can my current habits carry me to my desired future? So once I know what I'm optimizing for, are my current habits putting me on a path to get me there? You know, am I on the right trajectory? If so, maybe all you need is patience. You just need to let the days keep working for you. But if not, then something needs to change. So those are two questions I like. But to answer your original question, some advice that I got that was very helpful for me was try things until something comes easily. And that was advice that I followed really early in my entrepreneurial career. I tried a couple different business ideas. It was, uh, things kind of were okay, but they never really worked. It didn't kind of pan out. And then I started writing at jamesclear.com and I started writing about habits. And it was obvious just right away, like within the first month or two, that things were going so much easier than they were before. Now, the caveat to this advice, it does not mean only do things if they're easy. Like you still have to work quite hard. But what it does mean is you need to pay attention to when your hard work is really clicking and paying off. And that was a a situation where finally, about two years into my entrepreneurial career, I was trying something where the results were just coming so much easier than they were before. More people were interested, more email subscribers were signing up, more traffic to the website. I, I was engaged and interested in the content. It was just obvious that even though I wasn't making money from it yet and I wasn't um, hadn't achieved what I wanted to achieve yet, I was on a good path. Whereas before, everything kind of felt like an uphill battle. So try things until something comes easily. What's something that you wish for yourself? There are all kinds of goals and ambitions and all that sort of stuff. But I think if I could wish for anything, I'd wish for peace of mind. To feel good and to feel satisfied and like... I am enough and what I have is enough. I have moments where I feel that way and it's great. And I would love to have more moments like that. So I think uh, that if I could wish for any one thing, it probably would be peace of mind. Do you have a favorite prayer or saying or mantra? Hmm. It's interesting to think about like my self-talk and the type of things that I tell myself a lot. I don't think about them as like a prayer or a mantra, but they are like kind of philosophies that I come back to a lot. So like one philosophy I have is always ask, but never expect. I don't want to talk myself out of asking for something that I want, whether it's to to buy something or to attempt something or to ask for a favor from somebody. But I never expect for that person to do that thing. I think if you start to expect it, then you're entitled and it makes you, I don't know, it just leads to a lot of other things that I don't want. But if I always ask, then I'm not preventing myself from doing it. And that's kind of an unnatural thing for me a little bit. Like I, you know, a lot of people don't like sales or don't like pitching themselves. And I'm kind of like that too. Like I don't want to be, it's sort of uncomfortable, but I'll try to remind myself of that mantra. Always ask, just never expect. And then maybe I can, if I can ask for it in a humble way, well, now I made the ask and we'll see what happens. And you'd be surprised how many things can work out if you always ask. So that's one that I keep in mind. Another one that I is just kind of like a base belief that I have that kind of sitting in the back of my mind is I can figure it out. So I don't know the answer most of the time. And um, there are a lot of things that I might attempt that there's no playbook for or that I don't have any examples of someone in my life who's done it, but I can figure it out. And uh, I just sort of like try to stumble my way through life with that as, uh, you know, kind of my operating instructions. What is a life of greatness to you? To me, a great life is one that has useful contribution. You know, you've been able to contribute something to the people around you. You've been able to provide some sort of value, whether it's by being generous or by being useful or by trying to create something new. But it probably involves some act of creation. Now, I'm using that in like the broadest sense possible. You know, you could create a good moment with your kids today. You could create a new product that people could buy. You could create a new book that people could read or a post or a social media post that people could read. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Humans are capable of this interesting form of magic, which is the ability to create something that did not previously exist. 
And that is, I feel like one of the most powerful things that you can do with your life is to make something new. And so to me, a life of greatness is something where you have contributed something or created something new. And if you're able to do that for your fellow humans, then you've added your little bit to the pile of knowledge for humanity. And um, I think you can go to bed and sleep well. James Clear, you definitely have created a lot of goodness in this world and helped a lot of people. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for the lovely conversation today. Wonderful. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.